Hey there. I'm so glad you're here. My name is Margaret Petrie, and this is Authentic Obsessions. The world is filled with prolific artists who have an obsessive hunger to create. In this episode, I talk with Jennifer Pazienza, an oil painter living in New Brunswick, Canada. Jen uses landscape imagery to explore personal myths and histories, to heal the psychic havoc wrought by childhood loss, and to celebrate the life she now has. During our conversation, Jen talks about the poetics of place, the fluidity of time, trampolines, and how domestic knowledge was shaped by feminism. When we recorded this, she was in her light-filled, high-ceilinged studio with generous views of Keswick Ridge. If you go check out her artist video on her website, you'll also get this pang in your heart for a similar space. It's amazing. Please go to her website, check out her incredible work, follow her on Instagram at Jennifer Pazienza, and check out Got A Minute, her one-minute videos of New Brunswick artists on YouTube. You can see links takeaways and check out photos on her episode page at authenticobsessions.com and check out the show notes too. If you like this episode, if it resonates with you, if you think someone else would appreciate it, please share with a friend. This project is not about me. It's about community and sharing the stories and experiences of all the artists. All right, without further ado, here's my great conversation with Jen Pazienza. Hello, Jen. Thank you so much for showing up, coming, and agreeing to be on the podcast today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, good. Well, I'm so glad you're here. You have been an art educator, a painting instructor for many, many years. Have you always been a painter? I have been an art educator my whole life. That was a long time ago when I started as an art educator, (laughs) over 40 years ago, and taught K through 12 before becoming a university professor in art education. I've always been an art maker. I've always been a maker from the time I was a kid. And I come from an Italian American family in New Jersey, even though I live in Canada. And so I come from a family of makers, builders and makers of all sorts, food, houses, (laughs) you know, clothing, you know, you name it. So to your question, have I always been a painter, you asked? I gravitated toward painting as a young person in my late teens. And in undergraduate school, although I was studying art education, you had to take every studio possible because you had to be able to teach everything, right? Right. But it just seemed that photography, actually, photography, painting, and drawing were the three areas that really, really spoke to me. And uh, my master's is in painting and photography. And my PhD work, interestingly enough, even though it's in art education, and by the way, for those of you who are close to Milwaukee, I was for a year at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in art education. Somehow, a bit unusual, I have a a minor in painting in my PhD and studied with Richard Mayhew, who's a wonderful African uh, um, Native American painter who's just glorious. But in any case, so Painting uh, is what I continue to come back to. I've blown glass, I've done ceramic work, I've done myalka tiles in Sicily, but I always as a painter. And so, yes, I guess I can say to you, yeah, pretty much I've, I've been a painter and still learning how to be a painter. Yeah. <laughs> a maker, a maker always, it sounds like though. Yep. Yeah, in my kitchen studio or in my painting studio, yeah. <laughs> right. Can you remember the first time you made something that you really loved? My goodness, when I was a a little girl, there are a couple of things that come to mind. One was standing alongside my mother, who was rolling out pie dough for apple pies, and gave me a small piece of the dough 
that I then rolled out and made a smaller version of her pie. That was one thing that I remember really vividly. Another thing with regard to my mother was mixing up flour, salt, and water and making this thing on cardboard. I mean, it was just whatever. And then, of course, one of the highlights, absolute highlights, was the very first time I got to make meatballs at probably age seven and roll them and actually stand and be able to put them into the frying pan because in those days we still fried meatballs rather than baking them and so forth. And I still do that once a year. But anyway, those are probably three, three cooking things. From an art perspective, one, two things come to mind. My grandfather, my Sicilian grandfather, um, when I was a little girl, lived upstairs, my grandmother's grandparents, and he was a, a stonemason, bricklayer and a stonemason. And I used to play in the yard packing ice cube trays with mud and then turning them out and laying baby bricks, right? right? So I used to do that, which is interesting that I didn't go into more three-dimensional work. And then the other thing I can remember doing lots and lots of drawings that usually involved the natural world, which had stories with them, which was odd because I was born in Newark and grew up in Bloomfield, New Jersey, and surrounded by urban, you know, the urban environment bearing down on a quasi-suburban, anyway, that kind of context. So maybe that's more of an answer than you wanted, but those are the things that I remember, particularly from childhood, from earliest memories. I love the food memories. Anything you create informs the next thing that you create, no matter what the medium is, I think. I think the thing that happened early on was my mother had a very clear aesthetic sense about many things. And one of the things was if you have, you know, three-fourths of a pound of veal, three-fourths of beef, and three-fourths of pork, you should get 14 meatballs exactly. So there was this very, I mean, she wasn't a rigid person by any means, and she was very artful. But she, she conveyed some notion to me that there were reasons for doing things well and in particular ways because they turned out and they were beautiful and people could take advantage of that beauty. Now, she wouldn't have said it that way, but if you read, I have a paper online called Beautiful Dreamer, Landscape and Memory that I gave in Sicily in 2015. And I talk about the song Beautiful Dreamer, a song my mother also sang to me. So this notion of what constitutes beauty and the beautiful and the consuming of beauty uh, was very much linked to food. And my palette, my literal, my, my, my palette for eating <laughs> and my painting palette is very, very much informed by those very early memories about food, about texture and smell and scent and what it means to make things in, in this way. Yeah. Yeah. Can you describe for us what your work looks like? When I say that I'm fundamentally a landscape painter, it's, it's actually a little bit misleading because I do work from the natural world and what people might see as landscape imagery. In other words, trees and branches and flowers and so on and so on. But my paintings are atmospheric and gestural and they're poetic. You might occasionally see something that, oh, that looks like Curry Mountain, but, but not. I'm not a place painter in that regard. I am more about poetics of place, and I do my best to listen to my surrounding environment, what we call the landscape, which of course is not the natural world. The landscape is what humans have done to the natural world that makes it look the way it does, um, that cultural natural tension, which is interesting. And they become, landscape becomes metaphor in my paintings. So if people are willing to look closely and rather than just say, oh, well, there's some branches and there's some, you know, if they look closely and look at the possibility for metaphorical meaning, 
in the broken branches, in the young branches, the old branches. I mean, we can go on and on about, right? That's, that's what they'll see in my work. I'm very interested in the fluidity of time. I'm very interested in our relationship, our human nature, and its relationship to all of their natures. It's so funny. People talk about the natural world, and they seem to exclude humans. For me, what I have is always trying to understand where I fit in this thing that is housed in my body and everything that's outside of it. That's what I think about, and that's what I deal with. And for me, what you might call the natural world or the stuff that is natural outside of human natures, like all other natures, particularly trees, flowers, the mysteries in little enclaves of under branches and undersides, those have always been sites of refuge for me, refuge and renewal, and places where I can let my poetic imagination go and, and engage in that kind of daydreaming, if you will, and uh, see what I trust that what comes out on the other end will have been <laughs> all those interior landscapes of my life somehow informing how I understand the ones around me and what actually winds up on the canvas. Yeah, that really resonates with me too, the natural world and a place for renewal and rest and rebirth and... Yes, recreation. Yeah. I mean recreation, I mean the recreating of. Yeah. Right, right. One of my favorite series or collections that you have is Roots. You write, yeah, yeah. (laughs) After completing a challenging commission, I felt the need to return to my color palette, to my roots. You literally did paintings of many root vegetables and they're evocative and beautiful. They look like you just tore them from the earth and gave them a scrub and then painted them. You're amazing. They're beautiful. Thank you. You're very kind. That's pretty much what happened. Really? Uh, yes, we had <laughs> we, were, we were partners in an organic farm. That was, I think, 2014. I was working on those paintings. And what happened is, I did have a, my my one and only commission, and it really went sideways. Uh, I'm not going to go into details there, but I literally said to my husband, "When you come back from the farm, I said, please bring me." a bunch of beets and a bunch of carrots. I just need to get back to my own palette. And he literally brought them in. They were just sort of, we washed them off. And I literally just put them on my work table. I had a canvas, that first one, the one that's, that's called um, Mela's Carrots and Beets. There's a little bit of landscape line up above and yep. there's just carrots and beets. Well, I had that canvas just started with that little bit of landscape imagery at the top there when our dog got sick and I had put, she's fine now, but I put that canvas away and I looked around the studio. What do I have just to, just to get going? I wasn't even worried about what I was making or why. And I literally put that canvas up on the wall and I worked on those carrots and beets and it just like hit me. And those paintings, that's two weeks work, worth of work, all those paintings, they just flowed out of me. They just- wow. They just, I, I just went at it. I don't know how it's just to describe it. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, there, there are in those particularly what I would call a kind of therapeutic basis. I don't really like to talk about art therapy in this regard because it, people, again, there are so many misconceptions about what that means. But if you understand it to mean that you check in with where you are in the moment and you try to attend to where you are in the moment in your practice, right? Even without being Mm -hmm. so consciously, absolutely clear about what it is you're doing, this is what came out in that that context, yeah. You guys, you have to go look at our website and look at these photos because they are amazing. I mean, all of your work is beautiful, and this maybe is sort of a one-off on what you normally do, but it just really struck a chord with me for some reason, so thank thank you. And I want to go back for one second 
your partner's in an organic farm? No, not Are you were? We were, yeah, we were, but we've retired from that now. Did you, yeah. did you work it? I personally did not work the farm. What I did was the interns that we had, I helped teach them to cook. So, oh, oh, a so dream. Well, yeah, well, because oh, fun. lots of people have interest in good food and healthy food and want to do that. But for lots of reasons, folks don't know how to cook. And, and that's not a criticism. You know, I'm in that sort of crossover generation where I'm second generation Italian and my mother was caught just in that early feminism. But for my age, it's curious that I have a PhD, but still have all this domestic knowledge and experience as well. That's what I'm saying. Right. And so as women went back to work and rightly so, rightly so, but as women went back to work, and weren't necessarily cooking as much, prepare, you know, preparing foods, it's not surprising that young people, you know, didn't learn to cook. And I don't want to just make it out. To, I don't, um, please, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is the fault of women in any way, but it wasn't typically men who taught their kids in a t- traditional heterosexual <laughs> relationship. It wasn't right. the man who taught particularly, right? And it fell to women. And so that's one of the trade-offs. I'm not disappointed in the, the gains we've made in feminism, but there have been some things that were gained and some things that were lost. And some of those domestic things have, have been lost. And now what are you seeing? You're seeing young people wanting to come back, learn about food, grow mm-hmm. good food, cook good food, you know, and, uh, and so that's what I did there occasionally. Yeah. Can you talk about your limited palate and how you arrived at that sure. point? Sure. Sure. So all of these things are historically contextual. So as a young person in undergraduate school in the early uh, 70s, everything is what what I would call Armani colors. Everything was gray and neutral and so on. And so when I hit graduate school in the middle 80s and started painting classes with Richard Mayhew, who took color field painting to a whole other level. If you see his work, it's just magical what he does with color. And he saw me in class. He was very a very gentle soul with a wicked sense of humor. But he came over to me one time and he said, you know, I see you sort of struggling with a tonal palette. Why don't you get rid of that tube of Payne's gray? Because we were all learning to mix Payne's gray into our color to get tones of all the colors and try working with a limited palette. And I said, okay, well, what is that? <laughs> And so what it means is yellow, red, blue, white. So what that really means is cad yellow, cadmium yellow, cadmium yellow deep, cad red light, alizarin crimson, French ultramarine, titanium white, some cerulean. I have added magnesium blue since. And everything that I mix, I don't mix ahead of time. I don't mix a whole whack of tonal colors at once. You can start in a number of ways by laying, let's say like um, alizarin crimson down, giving it some space, laying the cad yellow over it, or you can mix those colors, work with them and create the, the tones of the colors as you go. Does that make sense? Uh, so, yes. so it's very exciting. So I, for instance, people ask me about, well, what people say to me, young people painting. So what, what kind of black do you use? <laughs> and I mix my own black. So what do you mean? Well, French ultramarine, alizarin crimson, cad yellow. If I want a yellow black, if I want a red black, if I want a blue black, if I want a green black, if I want a red violet black, if I want a blue violet black, if I want, you see what I'm saying? 
And right. that's, that's what that is. And it's been a lifetime experiment. I started in 1984 and I haven't looked back and I set out my palette the same way every time. I don't know if this is just contradictory, but it seems very freeing and at the same time full of so many more opportunities. Yes, you, you said it exactly. In fact, a few years ago, I gave a workshop titled Limited Palette, Endless Possibilities. And that's oh. why it's, it's so <laughs> investigative because it is so subtle. It's a funny kind of equation, but it's almost like analogous to shooting pool. Like you can learn to do a side bank shot, but every time you step up to make that shot, the balls are slightly in a different place. Right. So it's similar, but, and I love that, that nuance that's possible with mixing in that way. It's almost like, it's a little challenging because I'll, I'll have a painting session and it's almost like the conversation that we have now. We're in this conversation and then I'll stop and maybe I'll get back to it the next day. But if a couple of days goes past, I'll have to think myself back into the, the, the color conversation that I was, was in. But that's okay. I've, like I said, I've been learning to do this over, you know, uh, a good number of years. <laughs> this leads me to a question that doesn't seem like a normal segue, but okay. I was thinking about clothing and how freeing it is to have a limited palette in our clothing and that we don't have to make a whole lot of choices, which frees us up to do other things that are more important to us for those of us who like to dress like that. And I'm wondering if you have a uniform when you go into the studio. Yeah. um, (laughs) That's funny. I never really thought of it like that, but I suppose there is a bit of one. I use that term very loosely, uniform. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. But, well, yeah. first of all, you know, I live in a place that's that's cold <laughs> a lot of the year. Right. So I have a pair of, um, you might see them in some of my images on my social media. I have a pair, I, right now I, I refuse to call them snow pants. Right now I'm calling them my, my all-weather my all pants because I have to <laughs> use them a couple of mornings because it was so cold. But probably from like the first snowfall until whatever, I'm in those snow pants every day with tights on underneath or something else underneath. And is it a walk from your house to your studio? Yeah, actually. And in the winter, it's, it's a trek. Yeah. And sometimes I have snowshoes on as well, but usually what I have on. So in the cold months, I have those snow pants on and I have a number, I'm no longer buying fleece jackets, but, but I am wearing the ones that I have. Once I just, once, since I've learned what happens to fleece in the environment, I decided I wasn't going to buy fleece anymore and go back to, to wool. I mean, I have wool too, but, but anyway, so I have a couple of fleece things that I, I absolutely use because I've got gesso and stuff on them. And usually I have a turtleneck. I'm, I'm an old fashioned gal. I love turtlenecks. And usually I'm in a, a, a turtleneck and my whatever I have tights or yoga pants on underneath my snow pants. And, and in the summer months, I have lightweight. I mean, they're just beat up at the moment. In fact, I was like, putting, <laughs> I was like thinking, oh, I've got to sew up this side here, but I love them. They're, I like being things feeling loose on me while I'm working. I don't yeah. like feeling restricted in that way. And so, yeah, that's usually a t-shirt and a, a pair of cotton pants, either, you know, beige ones or black ones. And yeah, that's, that's what I, that's usually how I am. Great. I love to visualize what people, what their studios are like, what they look like in their studios, how they organize things, all of that stuff. May I just say this yeah, one go ahead. in case people follow up and look at my artist video. It was so funny. Like it never occurred to me that I should dress in a particular way. <laughs> like I'm making this professional <laughs> artist video and gee, like maybe would it, you know, why didn't I look to see if there was any hair on my black fleece jacket or anything? But in any case, the pants that I'm wearing in that video, the video was made in 2018. The pants were from graduate school from 1983. They're still a favorite pair of my painting pants from, so that's another. That's wonderful. Reminder that, you know, yeah. Anyway. 
Let's talk about the physicality of your work. I've seen you work very big. I've seen videos where you're working very big. I like to hear how people's bodies react to that, how you rest and recover. My body often hurts after I have an art painting making session. And I'm just curious how other people deal with that. Sure. I just want to sidestep for just a moment and say that one of the reasons why my paintings have gotten fair size, I mean, last year I just finished a bunch of eight inch squares. So, I mean, I work across a range of right. sizes, but it's not like I just wake up some morning and say, oh gee, I think I'll make an eight by six foot painting today. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or Returning to the notion of a poetics of space, it grows out of the context of working. I feel called to the sizes of the canvases that I make. And so to answer your question, how do I work? What happens? Truthfully, I feel better when I'm working large, mm -hmm. when my body is mm -hmm. free to move. My arms are exactly, and, and I have scaffolding, and I've never been one to go to step class, but there is a certain stepping up and down. And sure. At nearly 67, I'm really delighted that I can step up and down. And interestingly enough, I am better when I'm moving like that right. than when I'm standing tightly working on something smaller. And I think the other dimension of this too, I, I don't know if this is, <laughs> I hope I'm not getting ahead of, I don't know if this was a question you were going to ask me. Sometimes people ask, well, <laughs> what would you have done if you weren't a painter? I wanted to be a dancer as a little girl. Oh. I wanted desperately to take ballet lessons, but my family was such that we that's not something we could afford and something right. we were able to do. And it was like, okay, go draw, go draw, go draw. You know, my mother would tear open grocery store bags. I've said this in a number of places on social media and I would draw and I was happy doing that. But there is, your question is a good one. The physicality, and you asked me what my work looked like. There's a lot of movement in my work. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, in mm -hmm. fact, I'm, I'm working on a series of paintings. Your, your listeners can't see that, but maybe we can show them this one at some yep. point. It's just a current work where for whatever reason, this season, I am particularly feeling the change. And I usually, f it has nothing to do with seasonal disorder. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about really feeling the shift from summer to autumn and having one foot in that season and another in the other. And the wind, the, the what's happening environment. And of course, it's all metaphor for what's going on during this pandemic and so on and so forth. So, but all in that movement has, has, I think in large part been in my work because, because I enjoy that physicality very much. Right. And you have a walk to and from the studio every day Absolutely, that you work. So that helps sort of stretch you out. Do you do anything yeah. else to sort of yeah. rest and recover? Absolutely. And we deliberately did not put a bathroom in the studio. We're hooked up. If somebody wants to make this into a little house after I'm dead, they can. But we deliberately did not put a bathroom here because I wanted to be able to have to walk back to the house to get sure. take a break. Because I used to paint in the house and my, my practice was very integrated with my kitchen in my early paintings. Those long skinny paintings I was making in my living room studio and I could see them while I was cooking. So moving out here was a huge deal for me, a big, big change in my practice. It's almost like going into my kitchen is another kind of safe haven, by the way. It's another mm -hmm. place where I feel sure of myself and confident and so on. How do I, 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 um, it's really interesting. I don't really think I've never, no one's ever asked me. I've never really conceived of having to recover from my painting practice. I've never really thought about it in that way. I actually think it more the opposite that my painting practice is a place where I recover from other stuff that's going on in life. Excellent. Um, yes. Yes. However, you know, there are days when I might 
need to take a little break and so I'll do something else in the studio. I, it may not even be a physical break. It might be an emotional, intellectual break that I need. But to that end, I also practice yoga. I also lift weights. And my latest and greatest <laughs> physical endeavor is I've, I've purchased a rebounding trampoline. And Oh, I, tell us about that. Well, take a look. NASA has talked about them for years. Okay. The astronauts, once they return from two to three weeks of weightlessness, they have bone mass loss. And to recover that bone mass, they found that bouncing on trampoline, the G-force helps to repair that. The jury's out in terms of some of the claims around the benefit to the lymph lymphatic system in terms of eliminating toxins, viral and bacterial toxins from bouncing. But the, the effect on dopamine mood. I mean, just mm -hmm. think about it. Even now I'm oh. trying to think about it. I want to crack up, right? Me too. And that right. weightlessness when you're, when you actually lift off, just think about it in those like nanoseconds, your spine has no pressure on it. So even if I'm hurting, I bounce right. and I feel better afterwards. Moreover, <sighs> I can get my steps. I wear a trekker, I, you know, right. and I can get my steps bouncing and it's better on my hips and my lower back. Then actually, I mean, I have the energy for 10,000 steps. Heck, I have the energy for a gazillion steps, but my body doesn't always. Right. So this has been a wonderful, like two minutes of bouncing is equal to six running, 22 walking, 10 wow. swimming. It's so fun. I have, I'll send you a picture. And what's so fun is initially I could only bounce for like 20, 30 seconds at a time. And then I'd get off and it wasn't my breath. It was like how my legs were feeling and you bounce, you can bounce with shoes on, but I like bouncing barefoot. And now I've worked up to like really long ABBA songs or I've worked up to, you know, oh, fine. I, I know I'll say to Deezer, Hey Deezer, like from my generation, Hey Deezer, play Martha and the Vandellas dancing in the street. Right. And I'll do that or play the moms and the papas or it's really fun. And, I, and what's great about it is you can go and do one or two minutes, leave, go do what you have to do. You go back and do another one or two minutes at another time. You don't have to be there 20 minutes to right. get the benefit. It's great fun. And definitely I'm sleeping better. Definitely great for circulation. You have to take care of you. People should check with their doctors to be sure that it's good for them and all of that. But, but it's good to have that disclaimer. No, I can't stop smiling thinking about bouncing and laughing. It's like dancing. Exactly right. And you can't happens. not smile when you're dancing. I don't know how people could frown when they're dancing. Agreed. So for example, <laughs> you know, I'll be on, I'll be bouncing to whatever. And then I know that I can feel because there's a whole side body to us that we don't think about. We think of, you know, shins and calves and quads and thought, but there's like your whole side body that gets implicated in bouncing because your whole self, right? Right, right. So strength, you need to strengthen there and with your core. So I'll step off, but to keep my heart rate going, I'll just keep, I'll just dance. I'll just, you know, swing my arms, sure. and snap and keep going and then get back on. And it's great fun. It is. It's very good for spirits. We could just stop right now. That's like a okay. mic drop right there. We're done. Do you ever get stuck when you're working on a painting? And if you do, how do you get unstuck? Yeah, that's interesting. You should ask. The timing of it is perfect because I'm sort of stuck at the moment. I don't know that anyone else would see that it's a place of being stuck, but I see it. Right. Um, and let me just say what's to me what I mean by stuck. I'm in a place in the painting where visually I'm not sure how to resolve what seems to be a problem for me. And it's because the painting, because I follow sometimes, not sometimes, it's how I work, 
the marks suggest to me what comes. Sometimes that conversation has a mind of its own and goes, you know, madly off in all directions. And I'm like, oh my goodness, how did I get there? Gee, that's not working. How do I get that to work? Right. And my way of dealing with that, which has been great, has to do with being one retired. I have no deadline. I mean, I have shows lined up. I have exhibitions I'm working on. I'm absolutely. However, I have come to value the luxury and freedom and gift that I have of time. So I will just let the painting sit. And I just let it sit there on the wall, for example, where this one is at the moment. And I'll start something else. Sometimes it takes me a while to start something else because I want to get in there and fix it, <laughs> right? Sure. When I'm in there, I've got a fix it mode. Of course, that doesn't do anybody any good. You can't force it. Least of all, exactly. No wrestling it to the ground. So I'll just let it sit. Like, right, this can sit. I'll come back to it next year, this time, if I'm alive. Let it, let it sit. And I'll start something else. And I'll remind myself of those years when I was a photographer. And we'd shoot with old technology, shooting mm -hmm. a roll of 36. And you were lucky if you got a single image that you were happy with. Not every painting is going to be a painting you're happy with, right? But there's something in it that may challenge you and move you that gets resolved in the next one. And so I take advantage of that. I let it sit. It's just like a person or a baby or a puppy. I don't like forcing the issue. Just let it be. If I'm blessed with suddenly see something, it's like, oh my goodness, that's what it wants from me. That's what it wants from me. And I'll stop what I'm doing and do my best to do what I'm called to do in that moment. Does that make sense? It does. Do you think it's like writers when they talk about writing a shitty first draft? You know, you write the first draft and then you come back and you just have to get it out on paper. You have to get something out from your head onto the paper and you come back and you rework it and you can't, it can't be perfection the first time out of your head onto the page. Well, interestingly, know. like it, it may be like that sometimes, but it isn't like that for me all the time. It's interesting that you should talk about in terms of drafts. There's a painting on my website called Winter Sky One, and it's eight by six feet, and it hangs in the uh, law faculty at the University of New Brunswick here. I made that in January of 2010, and I came out to the studio, and I had two eight by six foot canvases. I had spent weeks figuring out the eight by six foot size. I put them on the walls and I literally like looked at this eight by six foot thing. I thought, my God, what are you doing, Jennifer? And I looked out the window and said, what do you want from me? And then I loaded up my brushes and I started with the winter sky and no kidding. The next thing I knew I was at the bottom of the, literally at the bottom of the painting and I could feel my back ache. So I was like, I was kind of awakened out of that reverie about 12 inches from the bottom of the painting between eight to 12 inches. And I looked at it and I thought, oh my goodness, this is nearly finished. And then it took me two weeks to finish the bottom of the painting. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, it just was paint on, paint off. And I talk about that in another place about karate kid of my generation of paint on, paint off, like wax on, wax off. But so there are some times when my first draft is pretty close to, and I don't know how it happens. It's just sometimes it happens. And it happened with that painting. And then it took me, oil to, to get the bottom to work for that. Do you normally just work on one painting at a time or do you have a few things going or does it depend? Yes. <laughs> okay. All of the above. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So, okay. So, well, some people really do work in a series, right? Yes. Shannon talks about how she works, you know, on nine paintings at once and goes yes. back and forth. I don't work on nine paintings at one time. Right. However, again, I retired in 2014. So I have the luxury 
of having a few things started. The reason why that's a point of departure or change for me is that when I was at UNB, we have in our collective agreement, which you may not, it's a little different in the States, we actually have a union. And we, uh, a binding piece of policy is, is called the collective agreement that administration and faculty follow. And under, under scholarship is creative work. And it's always under, under the gun every time each collective agreement is negotiated. So I felt very, very responsible as an art educator to be a practicing artist as well. Even though I was a theoretician and wrote about how to teach art history to kids and yada yada and all of that. Mm-hmm. But what that meant was I had to demonstrate that I could publish visually in a timely fashion. That also meant that I didn't have certain luxuries. And maybe luxury is the wrong word. I didn't have the gift of time that I have now that I could start several things at once. So in those days I was more completing painting by painting, but to be clear, my 2010 show landscape, love and longing, I would work on two canvases at one time, perhaps talking to each other, but now I can get others sort of on the go. And like the one that's waiting for me out there, I'm actually working on the outside of my studio today out on the porch. I have a 48 inch square out there. The one that, causing me some grief, I can let it sit now because I don't have to rush to publish. My next, I just had an exhibition we should talk about in a little while, but I don't have, to, I have my next is for next year. So I feel the room to let things set. So that means I can work in multiple. I have a six, six foot square because of this notion of fluidity of time. I started at the beginning. Yeah, it's sitting there 72 inches square. Uh, can you see the back of it from where you are? Oh, Wow. <laughs> Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. I, um, I started this painting in the spring when the apple blossoms and hawthorn blossoms were just coming in the trees that I could see from my window. And I got to a point where I stopped, but it's unfinished. You can see through here what needs to be finished. Now the apples are coming on the trees, right? We're coming on to autumn and I can, I can work with that imagery and deal with the, my way of dealing with the fluidity of time in this work. So I think I answered your question. I, I, I hope Sure. I it seems to me that the way you work is also in sync with the natural world and how it changes and ebbs and flows and the seasons change, right? Exactly. More and yeah. more all the time. Because when you think about it, the academic year is really artificial and goes oh. against, in our part of the world, in our mm-hmm. hemisphere, it isn't attuned to the natural world. I mean, we have kids in school when they should be hibernating. Well, of course, now we have other reasons why kids aren't in school. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? And I wonder sometimes, I've often wondered to myself, what would happen if we had kids at home? You know, if we paid attention to our, our seasonal differences, if we aligned schools around... To our own circadian rhythms and exactly right. What might, what might that look like and what would be the benefit of, of doing that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to dig in here a little bit with obsessions and maybe what would be helpful is if we talk about obsessions, not as a, it has obsession really has sort of a negative connotation just on the outside. Mm -hmm. I think about it as something that you can't stop talking about that keeps coming up. You know, it could be more of a theme or a topic that invades your mental, emotional, physical space. It finds its way into your creative life, into whatever medium you're doing. It finds its way into your paintings. But it's something, it's something foundational that you can't stop talking about. 
and that you've taken it and made it uniquely your own. So I don't know if you've thought about that. It could be something physical, something not physical. First of all, I, I love the title of the podcast, Authentic Obsessions, and I'm, I'm curious to know how you arrived. A shout out to Sonia Clark, who is a fiber artist. She gave a talk at an American Craft Council conference that I watched on YouTube. I don't know how I got there, but I did. Anyway, she asked the question, have you found your authentic obsession? And she credits that to an article by Adam Gopnik, Mm -hmm. wrote an article in The New Yorker about J.D. Salinger. Mm -hmm. Okay, so she took that and said what I just said. Your authentic obsession is the thing that is uniquely yours, and it allows you to create, and it's so annoying because it keeps coming up. I'm paraphrasing. These aren't her exact words. Because it keeps coming up, and you can't put it down. No matter what you do, you can't put it away. It just comes back to you. So, and, And the authentic part, I think it's just the thing that comes from deep within you, and if you are quiet enough and you listen to the whispers and the screams <laughs> and all that's coming from you and you're not afraid to be who you are, right? And just go for it and not think too much about what will other people think. I don't know if this is valid, but just what's coming from you and what can't you stop, stop thinking about? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. And I have an answer for you. I'm not sure it's about something that I can't stop thinking about, but let me just say what, sure, what sure. Then we can go from there. I've been living on Keswick Ridge in New Brunswick since May 13th of 1993. And I have been painting from the Keswick Ridge landscape since June of 1993. And that is 27 years. And Keswick Ridge has been the place that I have, for whatever reason, developed a hugely intimate relationship with. And what I mean by that is... Those of you who might want to take a look at my artist video, I hope you do. And a shout out to Zach Dickinson, the young man and his team who made the video. It was their first artist video and they absolutely nailed it. Joy Cummings is his mom. She's been my photographer for 30 years. Anyway, you'll see Keswick Ridge. And this is a very special place. We found this house. I won't go into those details, just totally by chance. I loved it as soon as we saw it. It's the oldest house on the ridge. Fortunately, my husband loved it too. And I started painting, you heard me say it earlier, in the living room of the house at the time, you know, when we first moved in. I started with some square paintings because that's where I left off in my painting practice. And halfway into it was for my first show called Between the Lines in 1994. And I said to my husband, this isn't right. The landscape doesn't want this. It wants me to go like this. It wants to me. And you can see in the autumn paintings, those long skinny paintings are seven inches high, seven feet long. That was the ridge saying to me, no, 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 not square paintings. We don't know each other that well yet. Let me, you know, I'm opening my arms to you just like, and now I'm, of course, I'm working on a show titled Embracing the Square, which will, because I've come back to the square all these years later. But what I've come to- to You know each other well enough now. Yes. And uh, it's interesting. And what I think I'm saying to you is that I have visited other places. Um, I've traveled. I mean, other landscapes inform my work. But this place, I keep coming back here and keep coming back to paint. So they're connected. I have done myolica tile work in Sicily. I have done ceramic work. I told you I had a dark room. I was a, a photographer. But I keep coming back to paint. I have blown glass I did with a wonderful glass blower here, but always as a painter. 
Keswick Ridge, it may have something to do with looking for home and what home is for a very long time in my life. I was eight and nine years old when my parents died. I went to live in a temporary situation until I was however old, until I went off on my own, making my way to finally coming to New Brunswick in 1989 at uh, 35 years of age. And I've lived in other places here in you know, Fredericton until moving to Keswick Ridge in 1993. And I wish I could say this in a more articulate way, but for whatever reason, this is where I belong. And I feel a responsibility and an obligation. And sometimes I think, oh, you know, I'm this urban kid. Why doesn't my work look more gritty? Why isn't it more edgy? Why isn't it more, you know, why isn't it about all the horrors of my childhood? Why isn't it about, no, 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 you, you, you right? Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, this is the place and of dear colleague and friend Vicki Lentz, who I would love for her to do. Am I allowed to say that? A podcast. Of with course you, you are. She's brilliant. She um, spoke. I hosted the first virtual art opening in New Brunswick this past August, and she spoke and talked about. And I never, it never dawned on me until I heard her say it about what it means to be painting on Keswick Ridge for 27 years to have that steadfast relationship with this place right? And to develop that and to go deeply into that. So I suppose it's not, isn't necessarily something I talk about all the time, but it is always present for me. And when people see my work, they know, they know it's the ridge. They know that there is something about the ridge and Jen that, that is just there. (laughs) It seems like it's baked into your soul. Well, uh, yes. And it's something that I don't take for granted. It's very, very, very special and particular thing. Last year, last December, I was involved in um, a small works challenge. I'm part of an international artist group called Art Next Level. It's led by artist and curator and and, uh, coach Sergio Gomez in Chicago. Wonderful person and his wife, Dr. Yanina Gomez. And they we did the small work show and I thought, you know, I'm not good at just doing one-offs. Like I, I work in the stream of what I'm doing. And I thought, what am I going to do? You know, like, I, what can I do for this? And then it just hit me. I made 27 squares, 27, eight inch squares. You see them on the, yes. Website. Yes. One each of the years that I I've love them. Keswick Ridge. Thank you. And I worked on them in one go and I'm not sure I exactly achieved what I hoped to do, which was to make the whole piece work as a single piece, but still have the individual ones work individually as such. Then, then for me, the way I work, the conceptual stuff came later because then I realized this is a grid and Instagram is a grid. And, and then there's the whole modernist idea about ground zero and the grid. I mean, there were so many metaphors that I didn't even realize were happening when I, you know, when I did this, once I had, once I had my way in that it was 27 squares and I was fine. It was good. I was good to go, but always coming back and commemorating Keswick Ridge. Keswick Ridge has been my partner. This is my, this is my companion. Elaine Scarry, philosopher Elaine Scarry in a tiny slim volume, which I heartily recommend titled on beauty and being just, she talks about how the, the landscape can welcome you. Like there's this welcoming kind of thing. And it may sound airy fairy and romantic or whatever, but I've never been someone who let's say, in Milwaukee, the year that I lived there, just go out and paint in Milwaukee. Like, it's just not, you know, I mean, right. it, the only other place was in Pennsylvania during grad school when I had lived and felt like I was part of the landscape there and had the right and responsibility to paint with it and to say something that it wanted to say. 
and not just take advantage of it in a way, if that makes any sense for my own, my own good. Yeah. Yeah. I love the color palette of the 27 squares. Thank you. And I think each one does stand on its own and to see them all together is very striking. Thank you. And they were just numbered, you know, one through 27. Right. And there's someone, you know, in, in New York that has whatever squares and somebody yeah. else, you know, and, and friends in Sicily. I mean, it's, you know, it's just, it's kind of fun that they're part of that. Like, and they're also, again, the metaphor for social media and the potential for interconnection by having one of those squares, you're, you're connected somehow to the owner uh-huh. of uh-huh. kind of. I love it. Thank you. Is there something that you're aching to change in the world or in yourself? Oh my goodness. I would like to not worry so much. I mean, I would like <laughs> I would like to believe once and for all that my work is worthy. I mean, I, like pick a thing, you know, come on. I'm Italian American, you know, <laughs> from Newark, New Jersey. About changing things in the world. <laughs> boy, oh boy, oh boy. If I could do a bewitched and, and wiggle my nose and I would pray for increased compassion in the world for a sense of of interdependence that interdependence would be the rule of the day and not a kind of radical individualism where we were only concerned for ourselves and instead that we were really and truly concerned for each other and i know that may sound kind of syrupy or whatever but the truth of it is i think that that's it yeah is there something in your studio that you can't live without oh boy oh boy oh boy is there a tool you turn to all the time Okay, I do have a, thank you. I have a brush and it's in the video. <laughs> I didn't know the guys were going to put it in the video, but I was, I was working and I said, look at this thing, you know, it's going to give out eventually. And they did this beautiful close up of this brush that's so worn. I'm still using it. I am still using it. How old I, is it? Uh, that brush is 30 years old or more. Okay. How big is it? Describe it. Say it. Yes. The image on my website of the artist video has this brush. So how much of that brush is soft still? <laughs> it's a tiny little tip and a little <laughs> bit around the end, but it's one of those brushes I, because I don't uh, draw with anything other than a brush when I'm painting. How long is it? 15 inches. Okay. It's so worn out. I don't remember what the number of the brush is, but yeah, it's, it's not going anywhere. I'm keeping it right there. I'll figure out something. <laughs> there you go. What's something that happens behind the scenes that people might not expect would be difficult, that might be difficult for you? Let me just say some of the things that challenge me in my practice that people might not think of when we talked about it before is what size and shape a canvas would be. I don't just wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to make a square painting. It grows out of a process. And sometimes I struggle with getting there. Like, what is it? So right now I am back to squares because I'm working with a curator and a dear artist friend, Paul Edouard Bork from Moncton, New Brunswick. And even though my studio is a rectangle, this is where like the wood stove is. Oh, by the way, I would, I would not want to be without my wood stove. <laughs> um, and, uh, but the painting area is, is a square. So one day he was in here looking at my paintings, which were the squares. He said, my goodness, you're really embracing the square, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am, because I, and that goes back to Gaston Bachelard's notion of the poetics of space and how different spaces confer meaning upon us. Yes, I'm in the square. I'm in a situation in the relationship with the landscape. I'm making squares. So I arrive at squares. That's not always easy for me, making that decision. Another challenging 
thing for me that people may not realize is believing that there will be another painting, that I will be making another painting, that I will still, here I am. It's going to be 28 years and I'm still working with Keswick Ridge. I haven't exhausted, even though my, my interest, my, oh, gee, why don't I try something like that? Like recently I tried photo transfer and I love my friend, shout out to Yoki. You know, she does amazing photo. I can't do them. They, I don't like the process. Forget it. Like, what was I thinking? Anyway. Right, right. Um, will that next painting come? Will that next one come? And, it all, and they do. Of course they do. But there are some times when there's this moment of kind of, hmm, because partly, historically, I'm a product of modernism. And the new, the new, the new. You have to reinvent yourself, reinvent yourself. Well, no, that's actually just a myth. That's a challenge for me. And I suppose finally, another way to answer it is, I love it that people would want to live with my work. I think that's one of the, the, the most amazing things in the world when someone wants to live with my work and they tell me what it means to live with my work. Sometimes it's not easy to see them go. Sometimes mm -hmm. I have certain relationships with them. They surround me right now, the studio's filling up and that they give energy and they help bring me to the next work. And, and so sometimes seeing them go is challenging. Do you have any sort of ritual or anything that you do when you say goodbye to a painting? I'm full of rituals. Yes. I, uh, yes. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I talk to them. <laughs> just like, usually I've been very lucky that I've done the installations. There have been a few things where I've had to well, like White Plains Hospital in New York has my work, so I didn't install it. They did, but I did get to see it after that it was up. And they assured me that they're very happy in their, in their home there. Oh, good. I call them their forever homes. Um, but it's, it's kind of like that. I just, you know, when I, I recently hung something for someone and, and I just said, you know, well, let me say it in another direction. I had a collector just ask me about a painting. I brought it to her house with my mask on and we hung it in the place where it was going to go. I was not convinced. This is a painting I never really ever wanted to sell and neither did my husband. And it looked great in the space, really looked beautiful. I said, just let it sit there. When she asked me about it, I said, I wasn't, I've never really been interested in selling this, but because it's you, you know, I'll, we'll consider right. it. So I go away. She keeps it for the weekend. She said, can you come by? I went over. Before she said anything, I said to her, I woke up this morning feeling like I'm not sure I could sell this, which is ridiculous, right? I mean, who would kill to sell a painting? And she said to me, she said, I love this painting, but I can't live with it. Wow. We had come to, and she's a serious collector of my work, which is amazing. We had come to this understanding was so great. So I brought the painting home and the painting's home. It's going to stay home. It's not. It's and you're both happy. And we're both happy. I said to her, if she, if she was somebody happy with it, it could go to her because I would feel comfortable for right. it to be in my home. But right now it's not a painting and I'm blessed. I mean, I'm saying this with all kinds of privilege. Don't think I don't know that. I have a pension. I mean, someone doesn't have the luxury to say, oh, I don't want to pay the bill, you know, sell that painting because it's, it's heartbreaking or something or it means too much mm -hmm. to my husband. I recognize the luxury in that. But because I have that luxury, I also have to honor it. Yeah. That's a wonderful story. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. I like that. You're, what's, what's another ritual you have? Well, have the ritual of the, um, of the limited palette, as you know. Right. And that is really a ritual related to 
how I work and setting it out. And when I clean things up and I set it out the same way, that is absolutely a ritual. Oh, I have absolute ritual in terms of how I prepare my canvases. I um, work with a company out of Ontario called Upper Canada Stretchers, and they're a fabulous company. They're a very green company. And they send me beautifully kiln dried stretcher bars with all the materials that I need to build my own stretchers. Very well done. Even the, like the six foot canvas, I stretched myself with my, you know, with my stret pliers and my electric staple gun. But I love preparing canvas. I absolutely, and I have a, the way that I do it, you know, I start from the middles, work out to the corners. I have the way of folding them, turn it over, you know, flick it to hear the drum. And then I have the process of, of three coats of gesso in different directions, sanding in between the edges. It's kind of like going back to cooking. It's like building a sauce. You know, when mm -hmm. I'm making um, a rosemary sauce and I'm sauteing onions and garlic and butter and olive oil, you know, it's that foundational stuff. It's where the painting starts to happen. And I imagine it, you know, and it has to do, you know, going again. I'm sorry. I, I never thought about, you know, it's funny. Going back to my mom, you know, and there were some foundational things. You know, if you want the meatballs to taste good, Jennifer, and you want people to like them and eat them and enjoy them, then you need to do certain things. And I feel for myself, and it's so funny because I don't hold anybody else to that standard. I mean, if people want to buy pre-primed, canvas or fine i it, like i have no but for me as long as i'm able to do that work i love using tools as long as i'm able to do that work that foundational work before the painting begins absolutely i'm going to keep doing it are you sort of in a meditative state when you do it and it allows you to think about what's going to come next in the painting do you think about what you're going to be painting as you do it or is it sort of like a cleansing of the palette from the last painting and you have this break before you start the new one. It's sort of like a, an intermission. Interesting. It's kind of like both those things, depending on where I am in the practice. So that's an excellent question because sometimes it's like, oh, I can't get this stretched fast enough because right. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to, you know, I have this right. thing. That you want to go. Exactly. I just, in fact, I just experienced that with a, a painting I'm working on right now. And sometimes though, it's also when I put on my music. And I just get into the thing of just the building of it and the making of it on its, on its own. Right. You know? Yeah. That's cool. Thank <laughs> you for sharing that. Oh, I appreciate that. I kind of want to know about your relationship with social media. Sure. Good, bad, ugly. Sure. Tell well, me. Well, I went kicking and screaming. And a couple of years ago, my darling daughter, Megan, said, Jen, if you are serious about being a full-time artist, you need a social media presence and I'm going to get you hooked up on Instagram. I'm like, Meg, I don't want to hear it. You know, I don't want to hear it. Set it up, blah, blah, blah. And she originally started my page for me and did a great job. And what was interesting is that our, we learned more about each other as we were doing this. So what happened though, she got pregnant. So I took it over and I loved it because I realized I could curate my page. I could tell a story. And then what happened further is I got involved with Art Next Level. We were in Exton, Pennsylvania last summer, and I had just done the Hampton Art Fair and knew about Art Next Level, but hadn't signed on exactly yet. And just as I was doing on Nona duties with the new baby, 
and away from my studio, I thought, well, what can I be doing? I thought, well, let me just immerse myself in understanding Instagram. And so Sergio had a special offer on all things Instagram. So I signed up for it for a month. And the wealth of knowledge on that Art Next Level website, I learned so much that I thought I want to continue. And what happened was I got more and more involved in understanding how Instagram, trying anyway to understand how it works and what did I want from it? I mean, I think that's one of the questions. And you'll look on my website and you'll see I have a, a tab that's called vids and pubs, which is videos and publications. And there are videos, it's something called The Way of the Happy Hybrid. It's one of my YouTube videos. And what that was, was talking about my relationship of being kind of this hybrid between wanting to engage in the actual world with artists and galleries and so forth, but also in the virtual world and those communities. And what does that mean? So if you get a chance, you may want to, or some of the listeners may want to take a listen to that because I do tell the story about my relationship with social media. And so where I am now is I have fortunately some very, very good artist friends because of Instagram and because of the Art Next Level Academy group. And when I was a little girl and I went to the New York World's Fair, I was like 10 years old, and they were saying, oh, someday there's going to be phones where you could see the person when you're talking to them. And my girlfriends and I were like, oh my God, they're going to see us with our hair and rollers or in our pajamas. <laughs> and here I am talking to you and, and seeing you. I love it that I can talk to an artist friend in Kerala, India during COVID. I love that I can, or anytime, I love that I can talk to you the way we're Mm-hmm. talking because and we learned about each other because of social media we learned right now don't misunderstand me there's a real underbelly but anything any technology anything left to humans can be turned inside out and and work for no good but some things can be worked for good so my view is i would rather if i'm going to be involved in any kind of social media i pay most of my attention to instagram and i let things go to to facebook I'm going to do the best I can to put the best content that I can out there in the world. So someone who's taking up space with some God awful, terrible stuff, if my little bit of content can supplant that, that's how I think about it, mm-hmm. which is how I got to in part to the God a minute videos. I was going to ask you about that. Do tell us. So in this art next level group uh, that I belong to, we were asked to create a 60 second video selfie like an elevator pitch about our work, concluding with three words that describe our work. And so I did that. And then the second part of that challenge was, what could you do with your Instagram page that will set it apart from other pages? And so I thought about it. That coincided sort of around the same time with COVID and the artist support pledge that Bruce Matthews, Bruce Matthews out of the UK started right. the artist support pledge. Well, I, cu- I really couldn't do the artist support pledge because I didn't have work small enough that fit into the category of $200. Or less. So I was trying to figure out what could I do? And it just came to me. I've always been an art advocate. I've been an art educator my whole life. Why don't I try these 60, mi- 60 second videos about New Brunswick artists. And my family know, I mean, I like wordplay. And my cousin in Rhode Island will say to me, you know, you realize when you call, you'll say, Pat, you got a minute? You know, it's like, and so it just- So that's came. where the title came from. And also because Instagram likes one minute 
until it clicks into IGTV. And I know that people are consuming, particularly during the height of the pandemic, consuming a lot of content. How can I do something, create something that in a single minute does justice to the artist and the work and introduces people to the, the depth and breadth and wealth of artists that we have in the province of New Brunswick in Atlantic Canada. That was my mission. And so once I got the temp, the design stuff going, where I'll, I have the little opening frame and the closing frame, I ask artists for 50 seconds, talk about your work, send me stills. And then I taught myself with the help of Zach Dickinson again, how to use Final Cut Pro. And I create these videos, these one minute videos. They're <laughs> they wonderful. Go to, they go to YouTube and the artist gets the YouTube link and they get the QuickTime video. And it's just my way of doing something. And what I'm really happy about is like, I don't have a grant, but I love letting people know. I love it that John Luca and Cicely, my friend, will say, oh, I love that video of so-and-so. Like now they know about Judy Blake or they know about, it's very cool. Isn't that the best part? That's the best part of this podcast is introducing you guys to each other exactly. and me finding other people. It's really about this community. I say yeah. it every episode, but it really is about the community. It feeds me so much. You know, I'll be very honest with you too. There are times when I take breaks. I don't, how do I want to say this personally? I mean, this is probably sacrilege in the social media world. I don't really care. I mean, if I say this, people will probably go there and just like stop following me because I say I don't care about, I care about followers. But truthfully, in my heart of hearts, I mean, who doesn't like to see their numbers go up? Right. Of course we do. But the truth of it is, I need to be doing something I really care about and really matters and means something. That's what matters first, you know, and, and sometimes I do take breaks and I'm not going to be held hostage by social media that somehow if I, if I take a break and don't post every single day or don't do whatever, that some things are, no, um, I, no, that's. <laughs> well, that's just, that's basic self-care. You need to take care of yourself first and do the things that you have to do. And if you, if, it, if it pleases you and you want to post and I mean, the God a minute videos are wonderful and you're doing a big service and letting others feel seen and heard by this. So I hope yeah. you don't stop that, but like other people's expectations of what they think you should be doing yeah, are yeah. impossible to live up to anyway. So yeah, no, you just exactly have to right. do what you need to no, do. No, no. I yeah. have a handful of people whose opinion of what I do and why I do it. In fact, I have one person in particular whose judgment I trust absolutely beyond anyone else's. And that's my husband, Jerry Clark. And uh, we were good friends and colleagues before we became the partners in life that we are. And he is the person I'm gifted with to, to be able to check in with and, and you know, be sure that, that I'm in tune with my motives, if that makes sense. Right, right. Yeah. That's wonderful. Are you ready for your rapid fire questions? Well, let's go for it. We'll see. I hope I can answer quickly. My questions are rapid fire. The answers don't have to be. <laughs> How about that? All right. First one, music, podcast, audiobook, or silence? Uh, silence first. Silence practically always first to tune in to where I am and to really listen to the landscape, to look. And then music <laughs> and very particular kinds of music depending on the frame of mind I'm in or would like to be in. And that has to do with 
the way music can transport us to other landscapes and other times of our lives. So if I need um, Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons to kick me back to my Jersey days, then, um, then I'll do that. Uh, the recent paintings, Italian love arias were on. I was listening to Aaron Neville just the other day in his soulful, gorgeous voice. Yeah, I don't listen to podcasts. I don't listen to talk while I'm painting. I can't divide my attention that way. My painting practice is very much about a one-pointed focus, one-pointed concentration. It's very much an extension of my meditation practice. So I, I'm careful about what's mm -hmm. on around me, what I'm surrounding myself in. All right, what's your comfort food? Pasta corrigotta. <laughs> Want me to say that in English? It's, it's yes, the Italian and explain. It's the very simple Italian version of uh, macaroni and cheese. So what it is, it's really good ricotta cheese, ricotta, and you boil pasta and you save back some of the boiled water. You mm -hmm. put the ricotta on the strained pasta, pour a little bit of that water on, a little drizzle of olive oil. I like a little bit of lemon peel, a little grinding of um, nutmeg, just a tiny bit. And then you could do other things with it. You know, in the springtime when I'm in Sicily and the peas are fresh, I have it with that or the fave. But just pasta and ricotta is, my com is a comfort food. That oh. and sea salt and olive oil kettle chips. <laughs> Those are addicting, aren't they? Yeah, the processed food I have in my house, right? Yeah. Chips. yeah. Potato chips are my downfall too. Describe your favorite outdoor spot. I'm looking at it. I know, I know. That was a no-brainer. <laughs> no, no, but actually, but, you know, there are other places, like there's this really great cafe that we've been going to regularly in Quebec City. We've, we typically go to Quebec City for our anniversary in October. We won't be going this year, but we have a cafe. We have several, but one of them is Cafe Soleil in just outside the old city. And we love sitting there. We like to watch the people. We like seeing, I mean, when I'm in Sicily, I have favorite places, outdoor places there. I mean, I could go through those things, but the truth of it is the most consistent outdoor place because of during COVID and we're not going to cafes and that kind of mm -hmm. thing. I bought a little cafe and bistro, little bistro table and two chairs on the corner of my deck and you can see down river. And we have our, once it gets a little warmer in the morning, because it's been a little chilly here in the mornings, we have our second uh, espresso sitting there and we feel like we're at a little cafe outside and we're in the, the landscape here. <laughs> oh, that's so, lovely. Yeah. That's great. What would you do with a financial windfall? Wow. Well, this is what I would do. I would first make sure that my children and grandchildren had what they needed. I'm not talking about living in a luxurious life, but had what they needed financially. Then the other thing I would do, there's so many things you could do, right? Mm -hmm. I, would, um, I would invest in building an integrated health clinic in Fredericton, New Brunswick. That's what I would do, where people could, if they needed to see a GP and a naturopath and a psychologist, and an OT person, and a physiotherapist, and an acupuncturist, and all of the possibilities, or a, and a yogi, and a range of spiritual leaders. I would put them all together in a building. They, are, they do exist in other places. There's an integrated health clinic in Halifax, Nova Scotia. But I would put that, I would want to see that happen in New Brunswick, and make that available to anyone. That's what I would do. This has been a pure pleasure, even though it took us a while to get to this stage. <laughs> <laughs> it has been such a pleasure getting to know you in person, seeing your face, seeing your studio, watching you wave around your fabulous paintbrush. If you hear any funny noises in the background, that's Jen tapping her paintbrush. I'm not going to edit that out. But seriously, thank you for sharing your experiences, 
your hopes and just the strength you have as a human and how you're helping other people feel seen and heard. Oh, thank you very much. And you know, back at you, sister. Thanks. <laughs> thank you for the work you're doing. It's uh, very timely, very needed, very important. Thank you so much.